Hello everybody and welcome to the WFI Scouting Podcast. Hope everyone's well and thank you for listening. Um, there's been a slight change after the prod's brief hiatus, that change being me. And while I don't have Dave's beautiful Irish brogue or pristine Brazilian beaches, I do have my own rubbish accent and some lovely Scottish rain. So we are here as always with Lee Scott. So Lee, how are you doing? I'm not bad, thanks Grant. Yourself? I am I'm not bad, not bad. I we were just talking about the beautiful Scottish weather and it seems to have stretched from coast to coast. So <laughs> I uh, uh, well. But um I, so this particular pod is um about scouting obviously and recruitment that looks at a few select players as well as a variety of clubs from around Europe and how those clubs identify and nurture talent suitable uh, to their own particular needs. Um, so we've got four players lined up in their respective clubs, and our first one is uh, Dennis Geiger, who is a, a 19-year-old that plays for Hoffenheim and has been capped at various uh, international levels, um, under-19s and under-17s, I believe it is. Um, and Hoffenheim at the moment, um, as they kind of always have been, I suppose, but they're a club in transition because this season is their first uh, season where they've had a European campaign to look forward to. Uh, but I think, by and large, they're, they're quite a young club as well. You know, their pr- progress has been massively accelerated through their, their rich owner. And, you know, everyone knows that Hoffenheim in itself is a, a tiny town of only a few thousand people. Um, so the club in itself is kind of arguably in a constant state of transition, but especially now because they've got this European campaign. So how do you think try to combine this uh, newfound European football uh, and how do you think that impacts on their player development and their uh, recruitment going forward? I think it's been it's been really difficult. I mean, you, you take Hoffenheim when they when they first burst out onto the Bundesliga. Obviously, you reference that they've got a, a rich owner in Dietmar Hopp. Hopp isn't like a normal tycoon owner, if you like. He, I believe, he is a billionaire, but he is genuinely a fan of the club. Even though they're a tiny, small club within Germany, he played for them as a, a youth player before he went off to, to join IBM and then launch his own software company, Germany, which has obviously been a huge success, allowing it by the club. So even though he is there and he is he has bankrolled the club, he does have a, a personal stake in it as well. So there's a slight difference there. But when they first appeared in the Bundesliga, it was very much about foreign players and foreign imports. And they, they spent a lot of money to take in the, these players that, Eventually, they they came close, I think, to winning the Bundesliga at one point before falling away towards the end of the season when Ralf Ragnick was in charge. But now, a few years ago, Dietmar Hopp took a step back and kind of thought about what he wanted for the club going forward. And it was that that moment where he had to decide whether he was going to keep pumping millions and millions into the club and keep the model going in terms of buying foreign players and hoping for success that way. Or if he was going to try and turn the club inwards a little bit to look at player development, to look at growing their own player, if you like. And thankfully for, for all of us, I think he chose the latter option. And he invested quite heavily in the training structure in the club and then the development, the, the coaching, things like that. A lot of money went into it. And now now when you look at Hoffenheim, they're a completely different side to the ones that came into Bundesliga in the first instance. As you said, they've, they've finished fourth in the Bundesliga last season. They've got European football this year. Not Champions League football, unfortunately. That, that two legs against Liverpool, I think, was always going to be a, a step too far for them at this stage. But they are in the Europa League, and although they haven't made a great start so far in the Europa League, they, they're still a club that I think will, will progress at the latter stages of the competition as the season goes on. 
and really it's it's all about the way that they've started to structure things a little bit differently so i think recently i mean you, you mentioned dave earlier on obviously dave's no longer going to be a part of this podcast but not that long ago he did a podcast with a man called lutz vanenstiel who's um a member of the the an executive at Hoffenheim who deals with social media, with player recruitment, with a, he's got a whole list of different different strings to his bow within the club. And in that podcast for WFI, they spent about half an hour, I think, talking about various things before the Champions League tie with Liverpool. And Fantasy made reference to the fact that now Hoffenheim, if you you take all their their age groups all the way down to the, their lowest intake they have at the academy, they now have one of the highest proportion of German internationals within within the Bundesliga. They have players representing Germany at different various age levels, so you can see that the, there is a bit of success in terms of the the development side there. Obviously, that they've lost two key players in the summer. When when you look at the fact they finished fourth, they they are before the end of the season. Sebastian Rudy, who's who was their defensive midfielder, they, he was the the player that kind of knitted everything together. He, along with Nicholas Schule, who was a, a central defender who was developed through the Hoffenheim ranks on his own, they both agreed to join Bayern Munich halfway through last season. So straight away, they've lost two key players there, and it is the Sebastian Rudy position, that defensive midfielder position, that's where Dennis Geiger's actually came into the side. Before the season started, he was expected to make his breakthrough to an extent, but nobody really expected him to play as often or as well as he has done. So really seeing him going forward, Dennis Geiger's coming to the club. Hoffenheim technically, I mean, Julian Nagelsmann, I think he needs no introduction, the Hoffenheim manager. He's one of the most highly rated young coaches in all of European and world football, never mind just in Germany. I'm surprised it took us long to mention them because it's almost like the first thing is mentioned as soon as Hoffenheim comes up within yeah. about four words, the words Julian and Nagelsmann come up. So yeah, Aye, it does. Um, he's he's kind of synonymous with the whole thing now. But and make no mistake, I mean, I I rate him extremely highly. He's he's one of the most innovative coaches I think that we've seen in a long time. Just in his, his training methods more than anything else. A lot of players, experienced players, like say Sandro Wagner, who's the Hoffenheim striker who's been scoring for Germany recently, he, he made a point last season of coming out to the media and saying that he's never experienced training sessions in which he's as mentally challenged as he was for for these. It's it's not so much only the physical side of it for the training sessions. The players are constantly thinking and constantly learning as they go. And that that's testament to the, the quality of the sessions that Nagelsmann is able to put on changing his tactics and his, his strategies before each and every during the match two or three times you'll change systems but he tends to start with either a back three or a back five those are kind of the two constants and it's the role, the the defensive midfield role, the pivot role in front of the defence, that that's where Dennis Geiger sits he's he's not a huge player, he's quite slight and quite small especially compared to Sebastian Rudy but he's excellent tactically if you watch him he's, his, his ability to read the play I think stands out most for me he's quite often when the opposition try to attack Geiger will be in space in front of the, the defence he doesn't man mark he tends not to not to be too close to the opposition player but as soon as a ball comes anywhere close to his zone he's extremely quick in the recovery to snap into the challenge to win the ball back He's very difficult to beat in one-on-one situations, even though he's he's quite you know, he's relatively small. I think he's listed by transfermarket.com as five foot eight, which he's not huge in terms of, of world football. He'd probably fit in with the Scotland team with the way that Gordon Strachan <laughs> talked about our lack of genetics. 
just being just being that that little bit smaller, but he is extremely tenacious. Um, definitely, I mean, I've been really impressed with him going forward this season. That's why he's, he's kind of the first player that was on the list for this podcast. To be honest, aye, that's that's what I was going to ask. Was that you know, like you said. Hoffenheim proportionally have got the the highest amount of uh, like internationals of various youth levels in, in the Bundesliga. So I was going to ask, like, what what is it that makes him stand out as opposed to uh, any any of the other Hoffenheim products? Is it the fact that he's recently come into the team, uh, or do you see him in general as being a cut above the rest? Or if you don't see him as a cut above the rest, I mean, who else should we maybe be looking at in the Hoffenheim team that's came through the system? I mean, there's already a few there. If you look at Nadim Amiri, he's a, a more attacking midfielder than Dennis Geiger. He's um, a lot taller, a lot more physical than Geiger is, and certainly a lot more forward thinking. He tends to to operate more in the final third of the field. He he came through into the on the scene season before last now, I think, and he's a product of the Hoffenheim Youth Academy. He's an extremely talented, very technically gifted midfielder, but he's a completely different player to Geiger. Geiger, I think. I think quite often when we look at young players, defensive-minded players are almost overlooked. It's 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 very tempting to look at young players and to you know the the purpose of this podcast and this this particular episode especially was to highlight four players that have really impressed so far this season. And it's easy to look at the likes of the the Kylian Mbappe's who will go out and light up a match with a piece of skill or score a goal or make an incisive pass. But sometimes it's that ability in the defensive third. That's overlooked, and it's incredibly important for to have for any team to have players that are that are capable of, and tactically disciplined and intelligent enough to to play in that kind of role. When you're in their defensive phase, it's it's important to have players like Dennis Geiger. He's he's not a flashy player. He tends to when he does recover the ball, he tends to look very quickly to pass it on and move it on. He he's not one for the forty yard diagonal pass from. From the role that he plays, he he doesn't really dribble. He won't try and beat a man or go forward. But what he does do is continually be in the right place at the right time. So he's always in position to look for the ball. He's always in position to get the ball and to move it on, recycle possession, kind of change the angle and the tempo of attacks from that that slot in front of the defence. The Hoffenheim team, I mean, it's... Well, Geiger's not really a playmaker, but they have a, a central defender called Kevin Vogt, who, when he joined Hoffenheim a couple of seasons ago, he was better known as a defensive midfielder, but Nagelsmann signed him primarily to play that centre-back role. He plays in the middle of their back three, and he's very much a, a playmaker. So Dennis Geiger's more free to, to constantly be looking for the ball and to get onto the ball and to make a little short, sharp, incisive passes. Saying that, though, he did score a goal this season. I don't think I've ever seen him get that high up the pitch and he suddenly appeared at the edge <laughs> of the opposition penalty area and smashed one in. So maybe he does have that to his game and maybe Nagelsmann just has him in more of a, a tactically disciplined role. You never know. I mean, I think one of the highest compliments I can play, I can pay him is uh, the fact that I watched Hoffenheim quite a lot last season, and I've seen him a few times this season. And obviously, we know that, uh, as you mentioned, like Sebastian Rudy uh, and uh, Nicholas Zula have left, but. I knew that obviously they had, they had someone that had replaced Rudy, but I would never have guessed that it was a 19-year-old. And I think that's maybe one of the biggest compliments you can pay him is the fact yeah. that he is so intelligent that he very much does his own cliche. But, you know, it's, it seems like he's been playing for years, you know, and that's, that's certainly how, that's the impression I got from watching him anyway. So I suppose the final, the final sort of thing I'll ask uh, about him specifically is... Um, 
I know this is always quite a hard one to sort of judge because you never know how a player's maybe going to develop, but how do you see him fitting in long term? I mean, do you think that position is already his and there's no question about it? Do you think that maybe he does have a little competition? Do you think he'll get rotated in and out of the team or do you see him being just more of a a sort of key player now? I, I think it'll be interesting to see how, how Geiger progresses going forwards, but I think a large part of the... I mean, I think that he's... He's kind of made that role his own at the moment, even as a 19-year-old. Normally, a 19-year-old player who comes into this position is the pivot in any side, the the pivot midfielder. It's a very tactically disciplined and tactically draining role because you you kind of need to understand everything about the team structure. It's not so much just about what you need to be doing. You need to understand where everybody else should be and, you know, the the progressions of the ball moving forward as well. So I think that normally for a 19-year-old, I would say that there needs to be some rotation. But... In terms of Geiger, I think that he's came in and he's impressed so far with his his ability to to kind of look natural in the role more than anything else. It's like you say, with Rudy leaving, suddenly you've got a 19-year-old in his place and he doesn't play like he's 19, which is a huge compliment for anybody, really. So whilst there will be mistakes for him going forward, I mean, at 19, you're nowhere near the complete player, so you will make errors, you will make mistakes, and there will be learning opportunities. I think that they'll come in the first team. I, I, I can see Geiger playing in that role going forward for the season anyway but I think in terms of the long term I think that the real question is going to be what's going to happen next for Hoffenheim at the end of the season especially if you consider that Jupp Heynckes is coming to Bayern Munich to the end of the season I mean that's that's there's no way that's going to be continued that contract beyond the end of this year and I think that Bayern Munich are very much set on Julian Nagelsmann as their next head coach so what happens, I I don't think that Nagelsmann will turn Bayern Munich down at this point I think that if they do come in for him for this summer for next season I think that he will be gone and then you've got the question of what happens to Hoffenheim and what happens to Geiger as well my own personal opinion is that if Nagelsmann does leave for Bayern Munich I think Thomas Tuchel will be the next coach of Hoffenheim and I think that if that's the case, then you're going to have a, a situation where Geiger is going to be able to learn more under another coach who's who's tactically intelligent and tactically switched on enough to develop him further as a player. So I'd like to see Geiger stay at Hoffenheim for at least another two or three seasons just to fill out a little bit more as a player and, and kind of learn the game a little bit more. So, But it'll be interesting to see what happens next season, certainly for Hoffenheim. Yeah, I, I think that the, the the question over Nagelsmann is, is interesting and very relevant because, and like you said, I don't think he'll turn them down either, especially when you look at some of his comments he's made in the press about, oh, well, I'm from Munich ah, and exactly. oh, I, think, I think we're going to maybe build a house in Munich, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, I think Tuchel's a shout. That's basically what I was going to say as well. But I guess the only question mark would be, um, there is a long time between now and the end of the season. Would somebody else maybe snap uh, Tuchel up? I don't know. I mean, maybe you, you would think you would think Hoffenheim know in the background anyway that look, he's probably going in the summer. Uh, so they, they might have had conversations with Tuchel already, just sort of saying, look, you know, just try to just sort of wait around for us and, and we'll because there will be an opening here. But it's whether Tuchel wants to wait or if he's already got his his um his eyes elsewhere. But I guess we'll have to wait and find out. But either way, I think um if there's one thing that Germany is good at, uh, they are good at having a young progressive coaches of which I suppose Nagelsmann is the the golden yeah, boy, right. you know. Yeah. So uh, I guess 
if it isn't too cold, there will be somebody else that they could look at. So I think the future's looking bright for them, uh, both for the player and the club. So here's hoping they can continue going forward. Um, but another another club that is uh, obviously very famed for developing the young players is Ajax. And that's uh, what's coming up next, because our next player is uh, Frankie de Jong, who's a 20-year-old Ajax and uh, Dutch Youth International. Um, now, I think it says uh, says it all about Ajax and their youth players. That I'm looking at this thinking, you know what, twenty is actually a wee bit old. You know, he's probably been in the first team for about <laughs> ten years. But um, as I said, Ajax are very famed and they are like synonymous with youth development. And um, so, what what can you tell us about? basically what is the Ajax model because that's a phrase that's just thrown about quite a lot so what is the Ajax model specifically in regards to development and pathways to first team op- um, opportunities I think I mean like you say Ajax are, are famed for for this the ability to develop players and give them first team opportunities at a young age and partly that is because they're, they're obviously a Dutch side and the Dutch league is is kind of set up in a way that young players are able to come in and make more of an impact than they would be say in, in the Bundesliga or Serie A for example where there's probably more competition amongst clubs but Ajax have been famous for years for the way that they've been able to do this and kind of I mean when you label a club a selling club in a lot of ways people kind of take it as a slight but Ajax have taken being a selling club and turned it into something of an art form I mean yes they they sell first team players on a a regular basis and and we'll continue to see that going forward there's no doubt I mean you've got Davinson Sanchez this season going to to Spurs before the start of this season and again, at the end of this season, there'll be other players that move on. Kasper Dolberg, the Danish striker, for example, I think he could very well be the next one kind of on the way out. And But they do so. They they sell players with, with the understanding that there will be players in their, their second team or in their under-19s, under-18s who can fit right into that role because... All of the teams in, in Ajax from top to bottom, they, they all play the same system. They all play the 4-3-3. They, it's the Dutch school of football for all the way from, from obviously from the great man, Johan Cruyff. And every player, every role within the team, players know that role and you still think there are some rough edges. But Ajax are extremely good at taking these players that aren't quite there yet and still need some development. But they'll give them exposure to the first team through these pathways. And sometimes that exposure to the first team is the final piece in the jigsaw and the players will go on from then from strength to strength and they'll go on to develop to become the next 40 million player and and then the pathway kind of resets itself and starts all over again. Like you said, uh, I'm trying. To, what was the exact phrase you used? I, th- I believe it was uh, Ajax have turned uh, being a selling club into an art form, and I think that is uh, because I think just I suppose you could probably say this is like the the structure of capitalism, but obviously, like most clubs would have to be selling clubs uh, because there's only X amount at the top that can really afford to do the buying. So I think that definitely is one of their strengths, and that. It's kind of sad, but in recent years, you would say that they are as synonymous with selling all their best players as they are with developing them in the first place. Because, I mean, ever since they won the Champions League in 1995, but I mean, that's not happening again. I mean, as as much as they got to the final of the Europa League, that's not the same level that they're at anymore. And indeed, Dutch football as a whole. Um, Before we actually move on to more about uh, 
Frankie de Jong himself. I was actually going to ask, because like you said, at every level within Ajax, they all play the same system, they all play the same sort of football. So then by the time you get to the first team, uh, they're already well-versed. Is that actually slightly a problem, specifically for Ajax? Because we've seen in recent years the um, the decline in the quality of the Dutch football, both at international level and at club level. Um, and one of the criticisms that's put forward, uh, or like one of the reasons that people put forward for why this has happened, is that maybe it's just become a little stagnant and they've, they haven't evolved their own ideas because you see like the way Germany and Spain play. It's very much rooted in a style of football but they've adapted it whereas maybe the Dutch haven't so would you say that um, as much as it works for like bringing players through to the first team do you think it's a problem that Ajax are so set in the Ajax way of playing? I think to an extent you're right I mean I, I remember going back again to Thomas Tuchel the, the German coach I remember a few years ago listening to a podcast that was on Radio 5 Live at the time and it was about a basically a podcast with uh, an English viewpoint looking at how Germany were doing so well in terms of developing players and their playing model was so much more advanced than than England's was and they, they had an interview with Thomas Tuchel now Tuchel before he was the the first team coach at Mainz he he was the one of the youth coaches at the club and he was talking specifically about youth development and he was asked that question if it was important for a club at youth level to have the same playing system going all the way through I mean remember this was back at the days where the La Masia at Barcelona was the, the vogue it was the, the, the big thing at the time and they famously have all the, the, the teams playing the same system in the same way that Ajax do um, and Tuchel actually answered that he felt that youth teams should play with their own identity more than with an overall club identity. His his own viewpoint was, what good is it playing 4-3-3 with a, a sitting midfielder and two central midfielders? If I have a number 10 who comes into my, my club who I can develop, you know, if I have a number 10 come in, then it's my job as a youth coach and a developer of talent to, to find a role within the structure for that number 10. So you kind of need to develop players in the role which they're, they're most comfortable rather than shoehorn them back into to a structure to fit the club. I think that in terms of, I mean, a large part, in my opinion, a large part of the problems with Dutch football at the moment, it isn't quite with the players or with the structures. It's actually with the coaches. I mean, you, you look at Spain, you look at Germany, you look at even to a lesser extent Italy and they have coaches young coaches who are progressive in their, their outlook in football and they're able to take the, the the structure of a club so they could take as you say Spain and Germany well, Spain more than Germany play the 4-3-3 it's the, the same as the Ajax way, it's the, the Cruyff the, the, you know the Cruyff way they've taken that from Barcelona and all the way through, it's the same structure but they've added elements that fit their their national playing identity a little bit better. So the Spanish team's that much better. Whereas Dutch coaches are, you look at Dutch coaches now, and the kind of there was a generation of Dutch coaches five, ten, fifteen years ago, and it's still the same names that we're talking about now. Where are the young progressive Dutch coaches? You have Peter Boss, who was of course at Ajax last season, is and doing well at Dortmund this year. But other than that, kind of you, you kind of then start to struggle a little bit because there there hasn't been kind of a coach come out and 
be able to take the game forward in a way that a Nagelsmann or a Guardiola or or someone like that seems to be able to. So, yeah, I think I think the four three three. It's I think it's important for Ajax to an extent because the four three three and the the Dutch school and that model of play is so ingrained with the fabric of the club. I think it would be difficult. There was a time a few seasons ago when Martin Yule was the coach and. He kind of moved more to a four four two or a a four two three one, and it just it wasn't Ajax anymore, and that that was the important thing. I mean, people at the club and supporters of the club and Dutch people and as a whole really are very proud of the fact that Ajax have been so successful with this model of play. So, kind of you kind of need to be able to take that model of play and then adapt it and change it from within that structure instead of looking at different structures. So I think that until there's a, a set of Dutch coaches who kind of start to come through and, and look at changing certain aspects of the system, I think that we're still going to have the same problems for Dutch football, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, all you need to do is really look at a national team and not just in the sense that how they've been struggling, it looks like unless they get an absolutely ridiculous result against Sweden that they're not going to make it to the World Cup. So that's a second major tournament in a row. But not just the results, when you look at the fact that uh, I believe this is Advocate's third time in charge and then you look at who was before him, so it was uh, Danny Blind and then you've had Van yeah. Hal being there a couple of times. Yeah. It's the same names just in a, in a circle you know oh this one won't work really he'll leave and then we'll just give it to his mate you know and you look at the younger generation yeah it's, it's Peter Bosch but who who else really I mean not not at his level anyway um, so you kind of hope for their sake and kind of for football's sake in general that they can they can Try and try and move on, and and that more young coaches will come through because it's one of the things in football that it just it doesn't feel right when there isn't a, a Dutch national team uh, and then by proxy a, a Dutch league and Dutch players that are of the highest quality. So, yeah, um, but but hopefully um, the player in question that we're discussing now, Frankie de Jong, he could be maybe one of the, the next generation of players. So uh, what are his main characteristics and uh, how long has he been in the team? Well, it's quite funny with Frankie de Jong. I mean, we just spent uh, about 10 minutes, 15 minutes, maybe speaking about the, the Ajax model development. And Frankie de Jong isn't actually a product of the Ajax Youth Academy. He was signed. <laughs> <laughs> he was. Um, he's originally from Willem Twy who are another team in the Dutch Eredivisie. Um, he came through there and kind of made his first team debut for Villantwy. And he, the thing with De Jong, though, is that although he didn't come through the Ajax system, he is very much an Ajax player in terms of his playing style and his characteristics in the field. He, he kind of fits in exactly with the 4-3-3 that we talked about with everything that is Ajax, kind of is Frankie De Jong. That's why he's he's become one of the one of the most, you know, um one of the highest hopes now that Ajax have for this season going forward is that he'll continue to develop and a lot of people think, although he's not quite at the position where he's at a regular first team starter, he's kinda of more coming off the bench at the moment. I don't think it'll be long before he's kinda of taken Lassa Shona's place in midfield for Ajax and will kind of have a, a, a Hakim Zaich, Donny van der Beek and Frankie de Jong midfield triumvirate for Ajax, which will be very exciting. Um, 
and he he signed last season, I think the just before last season for Ajax from Villa Twy, and he made the the odd appearance last season. And every time he came off the bench, he was he was a bit of a revelation in, in the way that he played. But his his real breakthrough came in the the young Ajax team who play in the Dutch second tier. They they're a B team who play you know against adults basically a B team of young players, and and he was the standout player for them last season. So when Peter Boss left. And uh, left Ajax for Dortmund, and they replaced him with the the young Ajax coach Marcel Kaiser. Kaiser was already fully aware of the talents of the young, so it was always going to be a matter of time before he was before he was given a chance. You kind of you speak about De Jong as a player, and he's the kind of player that you would you would almost pay to watch. You know, just he's worth the admission price on his own as it is. I I saw something on social media a couple of weeks ago that kind of made me laugh a little bit. Somebody who who put out a tweet, I think it was, who said that Frankie de Jong is a combination of Andres Iniesta and Luka Modric. Now, when you... Mm. Uh, yeah, you, you take that and you have to take it with a pinch of salt. I mean, I think I, I get asked quite often to, to compare players, to compare young players to, to players that are more well-known. I think that player comparison is a, a useful tool within scouting to an extent because you... you want to be able to paint a picture of, of what a player could be. But when I when I talk about player comparison, it's never a case of me saying that this player is, for example, if I said that Frankie de Jong was Andres Iniesta and Luka Modric, I'm not saying that that's what he is now. I'm saying that there are <laughs> characteristics of his game which are similar to those players. And I think that's where kind of comparisons can be helpful and important within football with young players. It's I mean, I used easy. to say that about Barry Bannon, so, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're not far wrong with the performances he's been putting in this season, are you? Mm. <laughs> um, but De Jong is a player, I mean, you do see, you talk about Iniesta and Modric and kind of one of the, the most important aspects of their game is their ability to create space on their own. Whenever they receive the ball, they always seem to receive the ball in a pocket of space and that's not accidental. That's them having a, a knowledge of the structure within a game and being able to scan and find space and use body feints and movement to kind of always be in a little pocket of space that allows him to play. Frankie de Jong does something very similar. He's got this this tendency before he receives the ball. If you, if you watch him play, it's really interesting to watch for a player, for a young player as well. He, he plays in the centre of midfield. He's, he's probably a number eight, more than a number six. He he kind of gets forward more. He, he likes to, to threaten the edge of the area and play in the final third and combine the final third. So he's not a sitting midfielder. So he's, he kind of plays more advanced than you would see Luka Modric. But before he receives the ball, he's always looking, he's always scanning. And that's something that we need to be teaching young players from a very young age in terms of their development. It's it's constantly looking to form a picture of the game in their mind before they take possession of the ball. So it's little looks over each shoulder and feeling behind them to make sure there's not pressure, things like that. So before he gets the ball, he's always looking. And when the ball's coming towards him, he's got this tendency to do a little feint. He kind of moves his hips and moves towards the ball and it's already like he's dribbling before he's even touched the ball and players are finding it very very difficult to read what he's going to do so more often than not Frankie de Jong gets the ball and straight away turns away from pressure these feints are just creating space and and opening the field for him a little bit so he always seems to be moving forwards with the ball and taking the ball in areas which can hurt the opposition he's a really interesting player to watch 
mean, he's he's not he's not small. He's quite tall, quite angular for 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 his age and for for the position that he plays. But whenever he gets the ball, he's extremely good in possession. You can see that that kind of comparison to Modric in that he's always looking to pass the ball. He he can dribble. He can take players on one on one. But his ability to combine in the final third with little passes and tight spaces are what really stands out. I think that De Jong will become. There, there's no question in my mind that he's going to become a Dutch international at some point. The, the only question that I really have is how long Ajax can keep a hold of him at this point. Yeah, I, I think a, a player I would maybe compare him with actually. And funnily enough, you mean you, you went uh, at length about the little body things he does even before he's got the ball. That's actually what made the comparison in my mind with uh, Danny Ceballos, who is obviously a, a young Spanish midfielder um, and also physically they're quite similar as well I think because you know, they're both quite tall as well as being quite technical but it's that little thing where they just they just drop the shoulder just as they're about to get the ball and the yep. one that was going, that was coming in to close them down just gets totally sold and they go in the complete yep. wrong direction and it's and yeah I mean th- that is a thing that essentially anybody can do but not everybody would do and uh, th- that's all down to that's not about practicing. Well, I mean, it is to an extent, but it's not about practicing that for 10 hours a day, you know, but it's having the wherewithal to know to do it in the first place. And um, it's, it's that awareness, like you said, it's, it's like painting the picture before you, you, you... There's no point in getting the ball and then you need to waste at least a second looking up and then figuring out where everyone is. Knowing that before you even take the ball, that you need to make space for yourself so then you can go on and you can do A, B and C. That is... Much like what we discussed with uh, Dennis Geiger at the start, I mean, that level of intelligence, you know, there's no way that you would think this guy's only 20 or something, you know. I mean, he's, he's so he's so intelligent that I'm, I'm with you. I've, I've got absolutely no doubts whatsoever that um, he will go on to become a, an international for his country because uh, he's just, he, he looks a real talent. And um, kind of going back to what we're saying about the, the coaching as well, um, I didn't realise that it was actually the, the Ajax young manager that, that got promoted after Bosch yeah. left. So, yeah. so hopefully um, he is... Uh, a sort of a younger coach as well, uh, or part of the next generation of coaches that that can help bring Dutch football forward. Um, but but st- sticking with uh, Dutch football, uh, our next player uh, also plays in the Netherlands, but he plays in the tier below the Eredivisie uh, for Fortuna Sittard, and his name is Per Schuurs, uh, and he's 17 years old. And one of the first things that stands out about him when you look up uh, when you look up Per is besides his obvious talent, it's the fact that he's a club captain at the age of 17. Now, do you think this means that he's extremely talented uh, or like has a great mindset and stuff or is it just the fact that he's the best player, let's give him the armband, or could it be more cynical than that? Is it almost like a PR thing? <laughs> like, let's, let's make a captain 17 because I was actually trying to think um, the last time uh, I've seen a captain of a club at that sort of age and the only one I can really think of and this is going back quite a few years now was I remember Fernando Torres who was captain at uh, Atletico Madrid when he was like 18, yeah, that's 19 right, yeah. I couldn't really think of any any more sort of standout examples beyond that so I mean what, what is it about and before we even get to his, his technical abilities and stuff like that or, or about Fortuna as a club but what is it about him that, that makes him a captain at his very 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 young age I think it's a combination. Um, when you, you see Shures play, 
he's a central defender, a right-sided central defender. And for being 17, he's already six foot three. He's a, a giant of a, a, he's not even a man, a giant of a, a teenager. He's, he's really imposing on the field. To the fact that he's already club captain speaks not only of his talent in the field, and believe me, he's he's a talented player. He's, he's kind of an anomaly within Dutch football. Quite often, these talented young players, they, they don't stay at a club like Fortuna um, mm. for any length of time. They'll be spotted quite early on when they're playing youth football, and they'll be moved on to a club like Ajax or PSV or even Feyenoord. But Shures has stayed with Fortuna Sittard and he's he's gone on and he's now a, a very much ingrained member of the first team. But he leads by example on the pitch more than anything else. He's, he's a very aggressive defender, not in the, the sense that he's fouling people and throwing people around. Don't get me wrong, six foot three, he could probably pick most people up and throw them about if he wanted to. <laughs> It's it's more about he defends on the front foot. So when you see the opposition attack, Shures tends to be the player who's looking to to cut the passing lane before the ball gets to him. And it, it's it's a skill for a defender to be able to do that. It's a lot of defenders prefer to play with the the striker in front of them because that way they're they're less likely to make an error that's going to let the striker in and goal. Shures, on the other hand, is quite happy to step in front of the striker to kind of look to cut the ball out before it hits that danger player. So I think the fact that he's he's always playing the front foot, he's he's always the one who's pushing the team forward and he quite likes joining in with the attacking phase as well. So he's quite obviously one of the best players at the club, but he also seems to have the mentality which you need to have to be a captain. Especially, I mean, at 17, you've got grown men, professional players who've got years of experience playing professional football, you're going to address the room and you're, you're kind of stepping up there to become the, the focal point for that squad. So I think if you're not a strong personality, you're, you're not going to last as a, a captain at that age. Yeah, exactly. And it probably, uh, like you said, it's quite surprising that he's actually still there because, you know, all the standout, uh, well, not all, obviously, but like the vast majority of the standout players um, at that sort of level would have been hoovered up by the likes of Ajax and that. So maybe, I mean, not that he demanded it himself, but maybe part of it as well was the fact that, you know, if we make him captain then he's almost got slightly more reason to stay as well because he, Aye, he sees he, he sees that uh, the club obviously values him um, more than just a commodity. You know, they, they value what he's got rather than what he could bring in um, in terms of finance. So that's quite interesting. But, but speaking of the club, um, I mean, like I mentioned, that is the, this is a, the second tier in the Netherlands. Um so what what are some of the issues that the club uh, or clubs like that would face with player development when you are a lower league side? Um, because it can't, well, I suppose it could be a good thing where like if, if you are going to produce really good players, then you could just sell them and then you could bring in somebody that's maybe more suitable for that level. Because if you're going to produce somebody that's already good enough to play at the top flight, then I guess it's good that you're getting the money in for them, but maybe not so good that you don't get to keep the players. So, you know, what, what are what are some of the issues that clubs like that do face if they are a lower league side? I think that you're right. The biggest thing is that if you're able to develop a player, they say just one player over a five-year cycle. I mean, youth development tends to work in cycles because you have the, the same group of players who who come through each stage of a club almost together with people dropping out and people being added in at some point, but the core will be there. So you tend to look at youth development in a five-year cycle in terms of players as they, as they mature towards kind of being able to be considered for the first team. And if you can have one player within that 
first team cycle for a club like Regina Sittard. I mean, in the summer there, there was talk already about teams like Liverpool being linked with Shures and, and Ajax were certainly linked with him. It, it, it really surprises me that Ajax didn't take him this summer, to be honest with you. They ended up signing an Austrian defender called Max Wolber and the, the jury's very much out on, on Wolber and, and whether he's going to be a first-team quality for Ajax going down the line. I thought that they would move for Shures and, and make the, the transfer, but it didn't come off for one reason or another. So if, if a club like Fortuna, who are they're a, a very small club, you know, even in, in in terms of Dutch sides, I mean, the, the Dutch second tier tends to be, there'll be the odd bigger team who've fallen on hard times and been relegated from the Eredivisie, and then there'll be a number of smaller sides who kind of make their living playing at that level, and Fortuna are one of the smaller sides that, that play around there. They, they have spent time in the Eredivisie from time to time, but for the most part, they're a second tier club. If they can have one player that they can sell for for a high transfer fee, then that plays that pays essentially for their youth academy for the next cycle of players. So if you look at a player like Shures, who even at that level, even for the Dutch second tier, he, he's going to command a sizable fee with the way that the market's been inflated this year especially. It's very, very difficult. A couple of years ago, I would say he was a £5 million player. That's kind of the level that I would be looking to pay for a player like Shures coming from that, that level. But now, with the way that things are inflated, you, you might well be looking at 10, 12, 15 million for a player. And as soon as a team like Fortuna can make that profit from a young player, they kind of have to, they owe to themselves to take that money if they can, because you never know in football what will happen next. Shears could get injured next season and, and never quite recover and be the player that he was, and they've missed out on that windfall. So I think it's a fine balancing act for a club at that level when they, they're developing young players. They, obviously, as I touched upon, it's unusual for a player like Shures to remain at a club at that level for any period of time because he will go to one of the bigger teams. Holland's quite a, a small country in geographical terms, so kind of everything is, is almost very centralised within the, their playing network. So players will be known and will be seen numerous times by these bigger sides. So for for a team like Fortuna, they, they will tend to work with players at almost the next tier down. So there will be the odd player that drops out from the Feyenoords, the Ajaxes, the PSVs, the Vitesse, players that drop out of there and come into a club like Fortuna. So it's almost about being able to coach players at that level. And if you can develop two or three players that go on into your first team on a, on a, say a one to two year cycle, if you can have three players come through and play for your first team without having the quality perhaps to go on to one of the bigger sides then that's the kind of thing that's a success for a team of that, that stature Yeah I think it's interesting like you said that basically Fortuna do have to time it right when they want to sell them um, because you do get the one where hold on too long maybe stagnates uh, or maybe gets yes. injured and you know it doesn't become as a valuable commodity uh, as he would have been uh, but then do it too early he might have kicked on that a little bit more and adds another 20, 25, 30% to his transfer fee. But, but speaking of not knowing what the future holds, uh, what do you think's next for them? Uh, the next move is important, obviously, from a standpoint of he obviously has to go somewhere that's going to play him, I think, just from a personal standpoint for him, because it's funny that you mentioned Liverpool there, because as soon as you said Liverpool, the first two words that popped in my mind were Danny Wilson. Uh, so you, 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 you would think that maybe... <laughs> he or his agent or advisor or someone, if Liverpool come in, 
he would maybe get toned about that kind of thing where like look maybe they don't have the best track record of signing young players and then actually maybe playing them as much as they should get played so do you think that's probably number one on his list of just making sure he goes somewhere where he actually will get played I hope so I think you're completely right in, in saying that his next move he needs to go somewhere where he's going to play that's the main thing I mean Shewers is he's a central defender as I say, he's big, he's strong, he's he's always in the front foot looking to cut things off before they develop into dangerous situations. But he's also excellent on the ball. He's he's a player who, the first time I watched him, I remember I came across him by accident. Somebody somebody mentioned him on Twitter to me, so I looked at him a couple of times and on Scout and I liked what I saw, but then I kind of forgot about him a little bit. And then this season I was watching um, Young Ajax to see and some of their young players and I watched their game against Fortuna and I just wondered who the, who this boy was suddenly there was <laughs> a giant of a man coming from defence for Fortuna and he, he's playing all these 40, 50 yard passes and diagonals that are inch perfect I mean there wasn't a lot of pressure on him some of the time but still the execution was excellent but for all of his qualities he's still 17 years old, he's still very very young as a central defender I mean there's kind of the, the theory that players, depending on their position, they reach their peaks at different times. And aside from goalkeepers, who are a completely separate entity, central defenders tend to reach their peak later than strikers or midfielders because it's that experience, that able, that ability to picture the game in your mind and to know what's going to happen kind of before it happens. That's the kind of thing that develops with experience. So I think that sure you'll make mistakes. He's 17. Of course he will. He'll he'll make bad choices, whether on the field or off the field, and he'll have to learn from that and continue to grow up and mature. So it's really important that he makes the right next step. The first thought I have is that he he should really be looking to move to an Ajax, a side like Ajax. If you consider that they have Matthias De Ligt, who made the breakthrough in the Ajax first team at this point last season when he was 17 and he's a left-sided central defender so you could have two players a similar age playing left and right in hmm. central defence going forward for Ajax which is a really interesting idea but again, even for Ajax that's very, very young um, another option <laughs> that I did think is that Shures may be well placed going into the Red Bull system I can see a club like Red Bull Salzburg who would be excellent for for Shures at this point. They've already developed a couple of central defenders, one of whom uh, moved on up from Morocco. I'm never sure how to pronounce his name. The the French central midfielder, he moved to Red Bull Leipzig from Salzburg. So he's kind of gone down their development pathway. And there's a lot of similarities between his game and and Shures. So I can see the kind of development going that way. And again, that's a, a side in a structure in which he would play but game time has to come first. There's, there's no doubt in my mind that he's going to leave Fortuna. I think it'll be at the end of this season. I think this will be his last season at the club. I think that his his quality, he's, he's a standout player in that league and there's no way really that, as you say, the, the balancing act is so fine between selling a player at the right time and, and holding on to him for your own your own games, as it were. So I think he will leave and it just depends where he goes. I hope that he doesn't move to a Premier League club, but I hope that he doesn't move to one of the Spanish giants and just sit on the bench. So I'll be interested to see what he decides to do. 
Yeah, and um, as much as we both said that it's important that Fortuna time it right, I mean, let's be honest, I mean, he has to time it right as well because that's part of the modern game. The players hold the cards. He he essentially decides when he wants to go, uh, or, or could at least, you know. Um, and I think that it is important. Yeah, he does go somewhere that he plays, but he doesn't just stick around too long because you do get the risk of stagnation which yes. kind of nicely takes us on to our, to our fourth and final player that is Kieran Tierney um, he's obviously he's, he's not long term 20 uh, he's a Celtic and Scotland player uh, primarily a, a left full black but I mean as for the national team we've seen him play at right back we've seen him play uh, in a back three for Scotland on the left uh, we've I think he actually played in the middle of a back two for Celtic as well which is quite interesting and yep, then yep. Uh, then scored from like 40 yards so fair <laughs> enough um, but, um, and, but yeah so the transition there was like stagnation and yeah, he plays in Scotland. Everybody knows this. It's, uh, it used to be a two-team league. Now, apparently, it's only a one-team league because Rangers are still kind of rebuilding and this and that. How do you think Celtic and clubs in general from that kind of environment where it's less competitive and they are kind of up there on their own, how is player development affected in that sort of league structure? First of all, I'd love to say that Scotland was still a two-team league as an Aberdeen fan, but <laughs> <laughs> but really, realistically, you're absolutely right. Celtic are far out, far away ahead of any other club, and that makes it difficult for them in terms of a, a side which develops talent. I mean, you look at we talked about Ajax and how Ajax had made being a selling club almost fashionable and almost a success and there was a period three, four, five years ago where Celtic were kind of in danger of doing the same thing. You had the, the Victor Vanyamas, the Fraser Forsters, these players who, Virgil van Dijk, obviously usually in the news over the summer, all of these players played at one point for Celtic and they kind of were making a name for themselves as a club within European football where players could move to in order to they almost provided a shot window for the English Premiership because there's the geographical proximity we're next door to each other. The football's not the same, but the weather's the same, the conditions are the same, the atmosphere at Celtic Park is the same as you get the bigger clubs down in England. So all these things kind of made Celtic seem as though they were a proving ground for, for players before they moved. We got the big move down to England and then went on to make a name for themselves down there. So Celtic seem to have almost transitioned away from that a little bit, whether that's to do with the quality of players that they've recruited over the last couple of years or whether that's to do with a mindset change within the club, I'm not sure. But I think that clubs like Celtic, like, I don't know, Copenhagen in Denmark, like Basel in Switzerland, they almost have a, the way that I see it, they almost have a, a what's the word I'm looking for? They almost have, they, they should be the club who are, developing players going forward not only for the club but also for the national team. There needs to be an understanding that Celtic should be looking to develop players for the future of Scotland as well. Please! (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I mean, you have Brendan Rodgers for all that. There's a lot of negativity surrounding Brendan Rodgers when he was at Liverpool but I think that he is he has done great things since he moved to Celtic. There, There seems to be he's transformed the way the club 
thinks in terms of coaching. He's, there's a lot of innovative new ideas and in, in that the coaching and the, anal- the analysis team are doing at Celtic there. It's kind of given them more of a competitive advantage than they do have already. So he's came in and he should really be the kind of coach that we want young, talented Scottish players to be to be exposed to. That's why, even as an Aberdeen fan, I was kind of gutted when we took Ryan Christie on loan from Celtic. Ryan Christie, for those that don't know, is a he's a attacking midfielder who's full of tricks. He's composed in the ball. He's quick, pacey. He can finish. He he just he needs to take that next step now. I think and coming to Aberdeen, much as I love having him at my club because he's an excellent player and he's probably one of our best players. I would rather have seen him sit and train and learn from Brendan Rodgers for a year rather than being up here playing for Aberdeen. I think he would have been better served doing that. And I think that Celtic need to be kind of in a position where they're looking to develop these young players that they should be looking to take through. We, we spoke previously about, you know, Fortuna Sitar looking to add two or three players over a two-year cycle to the first team. Celtic should be doing the same. They should be taking young Scottish players and giving them exposure to first-team football. But the problem that they have, and it's almost unique to Scotland in this sense for for almost a one-club league, the pressure on Celtic to win all the time is unreal. If you, For all that, you know, they can have the odd-off game. They, they'd struggled against Hibs recently. But there's still an absolute pressure for them to win and that makes youth development quite difficult because you're kind of you're throwing these young players into a situation where the expectations almost unrealistic in terms of youth development and developing young players you kind of expect them to make mistakes but if a young player coming through at Celtic makes a mistake and makes two mistakes makes three mistakes He's unlikely to be seen in the first team again in, in the, the near future. And that's something that maybe needs to change a little bit. It's the mentality side of Scottish football and Celtic in particular. I definitely, because I think that's arguably... Well, yeah, because it is, it is unique to Celtic in the sense that they are very much out on their own at the top of the league and stuff. But I, you would think that that attitude of maybe not allowing mistakes uh, or, or kind of not wanting to see mistakes, you know, you'd rather they're made in the background, you'd rather they made them in the youth team, but that's just not realistic. You would say that's almost endemic of a... It's quite, it's quite a British thing, you know, in terms of like the, the, the British football, in terms of just... They want it now, you know. There is no long-term plan. There is no, uh, it's nice to see people develop. No, it's all about success now. And kind of going back to our former player, uh, uh, Per Shures, that, that we were talking about there, you said you didn't want to see him going to like, the English Premier League. I mean, aye, because part of the reason is, is that he won't get a chance. You know, like he wouldn't, he wouldn't necessarily yep, be, able, be allowed to make mistakes. And as much as you know, maybe Celtic won't appreciate become British, but uh, it's the same thing. You know, <laughs> like like they 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 are part of that um, culture. You know, and it's it is unfortunate, and it's very true because it's actually something I didn't really think about until you mentioned it there. When you see young players making. A mistake, fair enough, but I up here if they make two, three, they're gone. Yeah, you know, yep. and it's yep, yeah. and it's it's almost like I mean, who, well, who do you think you are? <laughs> you know, what I mean, like <laughs> I, I don't know what level you think we're playing it here, but um, you know, fair enough. But um, well, well t- talking about Tierney uh, in particular, then um, well, before I actually ask any of these uh, couple of questions I've got here, I just want to give a, a, a brief outline as to what sort of player he is, and I say brief in the sense that. Personally, for WFI, I, I wrote like a four thousand word opus uh, about <laughs> Kieran Tierney. So, I mean, if you could maybe condense it a little more than that, that would be good. 
as you said, he's a left-sided defender. Um, I think going forward, that's going to be his best position. It's been interesting to see him play. I mean, for Scotland, he played on the right, but that's because despite the fact that Scotland have been so poor for the last um, however long, suddenly we have two genuine international class players, but they're both bloody left-backs. So we have Andrew Robertson at Liverpool and we have Kieran Tierney at Celtic who've both come through. So kind of Tierney's been the player who's moved over at the right hand side and he's played in the central defence. But all of these things, that those different positional changes within the, the defensive structure, they're all going to benefit Tierney in the long run because if you can add these 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 abilities and these experiences of playing in different positions, it gives you a different picture of the game. But I think what, what I'm most impressed about with Tierney is that a lot of the times now in modern football, you see fullbacks come through, and they're fantastic going forward, and they're they're flying. But that's because they're wingers that have been converted at youth level to play as fullback, because there may be there may be a doubt within the coaching structure that that player is going to become a, a international class or a first team class player as a winger, but as a, a left or right back where you have more time on the ball and there's more space to attack and get up to speed, kind of they move to fullback and then they learn the defensive side of the game. Tierney on the other side is a defensive fullback who's learned the attacking side of the game and that really shows with his, the way that he plays. I mean, obviously playing for a team like Celtic, they spend a lot of time in the attacking phase so he, he's kind of coming at the first team and apart from scoring 40 yarders, he's he's extremely adept at making that delayed run behind the opposition fullback and getting slipped past it down the outside and crossing the ball in. His crossing ability is great. He's very physical as a defender as well. So I think that going forward, there's, there's a definitely a lot of positives for, for Tierney as a player, but it'll all be about, I think, what he does next, I think, is going to be, or what Celtic do next. I mean, Tierney's he's not actually Glasgow born, but he's lived there for most of his life, and he's very much a Celtic fan. He's Celtic daft, and he loves the club, which is great for clubs, for fans to see. You know, a young player coming in and being a success who you can call your own, and he's he's he supports your club, and that's great. But at some point in terms of his development, Tierney's really going to have to stretch himself by making a move. I think. Absolutely. I, uh, before we go on that last point, uh, I was going to say that I think it is interesting that he has made these positional moves at a young age, like you said. Um, and I think that was part of the reason that maybe uh, he was asked to go to your right back as opposed to Andy Robertson to go to your right back because it almost helps that he's only really been in the first team. Uh, oh, well, sorry, but by the time he made that switch over to right back, he was only really in the Celtic first team for about a year and a half. Uh, so in a sense, it's almost like he didn't have a lot of habits ingrained in him where the move would be easier as opposed uh, to somebody that's, that's made they've been playing at like, you know, top level uh, like left back for like five years or something, you know. Yeah. So maybe it was easier for him. Uh, and also, I think uh, in the article that I mentioned, uh, I said that part of the reason that maybe he got the move is it just felt right, you know, because that's the thing about Tierney is that at his age, I mean, yeah, he's 20 now, but it was the same when he was like 18. Like, uh, you can't even believe his age. And it's the same for a lot of the players that we've, that we've mentioned um, tonight. They don't seem like players that are teenagers or very early 20s. They do have this maturity and understanding of the game that, that just seems years beyond what their what their passport says, you know. And um, he does have this reliability about him, which I think is really interesting because you would think that, especially for, for defenders, you know, they do 
kind of, well, you would almost say they do need time to sort of properly understand their role, uh, especially against better players. Whereas, you know, he's just sort of worn it like a glove. You know, it, it, it doesn't matter to him whatsoever. And uh, yeah, it's just maturity. And even talking about going forward, I think it's interesting that he rarely seems to properly like cross the ball and he always reach the byline and then look for a pass as opposed yeah. to just like lumping it. So he does have this very heads up way of playing going forward and he seems to sort of have his head screwed on going backwards. But do you think that, I guess, I guess as a simple question, I guess the question was on everybody's lips, but I, I'll just ask it then. Do you think that Tierney is capable of playing at quote unquote the highest level? I think so. I, th- I think he's, it may be the fact that we're both Scottish and we're biased a little bit and we're mm. holding out hope for a, a player who's going to come through and, and do it. But I think that Tierney, Tierney, kind of, you touched upon it with that the sense of maturity and calmness that Tierney has with the mindset and the fact that he's so reliable and you feel like you can trust him um, in almost any situation. I mean, you'd have no qualms about Tierney coming in and playing centre-half for you because you know that he'll do it and he'll do it well. And he's as much as he's a technical player, I think he's also got that sense that you almost need to be a bit rugged and a bit rough to play centre half to an extent and he's got that side of his game as well he's, he's not going to be pushed around by an opposition striker that may be more experienced I think all of this stands him in good stead I mean at 20 as you said he, he still has to develop and we've touched upon it before with defensive players full backs are, are again different to centre backs if you look at the kind of the, the point where they reach their peak that's slightly before centre half so but that's more to do with the, the physical side you know the the sprint speed and the, the ability to perform repetitive sprints at high intensity I think that's a, a key part of what clubs look at just now in terms of recruiting fullbacks so they, they're kind of looking towards the younger players but having a player like Tierney who's able to to defend as well as he is able to attack I think that'll be extremely attractive to a lot of clubs and I do think that he's going to go on and become a regular Champions League kind of level player I would say international level but as a Scotsman it's kind of that's not really a very high level at the moment I'm afraid <laughs> so, so you, you have to kind of look at the Champions League as being above what, what we have at a national level so I think he will be a genuine Champions League level player going forward and then I guess the follow up question to that is do you think it's inevitable that he'll move to English football or would you rule out a move to the continent? I, I would love to see him move to the continent. I mean, I was I was yeah, I I was kind of upset to a point where Oliver Burke came back to sign for West <laughs> Brom after the season at Red Bull Leipzig, I think that John Hartson was right. I, well, maybe that's why I'm upset. I can't believe that he was right. Um I, you, you look at you look at Scottish players and although we, we speak about Tierney and don't get me wrong Tierney's more developed as a player than Oliver Burke was so I think that Tierney could go into the Bundesliga for example and that, that league would suit him down the ground I think he would be a revelation at that, at that level the only question would be the same thing that happened to Oliver Burke when he moved to to Germany. The the quotes that were coming out of Red Bull Leipzig at the time were that his his tactical hard drive was empty. Not just he was he didn't understand a few tactical concepts. They said he had none. 
<laughs> we, we, talked, we talked about Dennis Geiger and, and his ability to read the game and his tactical understanding. That's something that's taught at a young age in German football and it's something that's sorely missing within Scottish football. And personally, I think that's where we're missing a trick in terms of the way that we, we run our development for young players. Well, well, well not, not, not to interrupt, but do you think this is where maybe somebody like Brendan Rogers does come in as a huge positive? Because surely some of the stuff that he would have been teaching players like here and a lot of the younger ones, uh, not just him, but the staff he's brought in, would have been light years ahead of anything, well, not anything else, but most things in Scottish football. So do you think that the fact that he's been working under a manager like um, Brendan Rogers, as opposed to, say, Jim Jeffries, you know, like, do you think that <laughs> helps him um, in that regard? I, I definitely do. That's why I, I, think I touched upon the importance that Brendan Rogers has for Celtic in terms of developing young players. I think that he is a coach who, who has a real understanding of the tactical side of the game. And his number two, um, Chris Davies, is another coach who I rate very, very highly. I think he'll be a manager in his own right one day. I think he's excellent technically and tactically. Um, I think that having the two of them and with Kieran Tierney playing under them I think that he does have a higher level understanding I think than you would for say 90% of Scottish coaches I think that there are some who are very very good but at the same time there's a number and you can count a number of former settled coaches amongst that that kind of it's more a rudimental style of football so I think that that might you might have a good point there he might be able to go to the Bundesliga and have more of an, an understanding tactically but unfortunately, I think it's far more likely that he's going to go to England. I think that we've already yeah. seen. You, know, I, I don't think Liverpool are an option now because they've obviously gone out and got Robertson. So that may be one that's off the table. But Manchester United, Arsenal—they've they, been continuously linked in the media. I don't know how true those reports are. I would still almost rather see Tierney make the you know people people have a go at Liverpool for signing Southampton players but for a while Southampton were signing all the Celtic players so I would quite like to see Tierney go down to a club like Southampton where he could continue to develop and kind of play at a slightly higher level week in week out than he gets in, the, in, in Scottish football and see how he goes from there but yeah I do think he's going to go to England unfortunately you do wonder though if uh, because you touched on earlier that he is Celtic daft you know I mean it will take some offer for him to to probably want to go you know he, I don't think he's just going to leave to go anywhere as soon as the money comes in you know because I'm sure probably clubs have already bid and um, be it the club himself or the player himself or a combination of the two have decided you know, now's not the time but you would think that maybe somebody like Southampton wouldn't be enough for for Tierney to uh, to want to go, I mean, maybe he would have his eyes on eleven like a Manchester United, you know, or like somebody somebody that would be finishing in the Champions League positions because you know would they want to give that up? Because he's he's obviously got like regular European football where he is at the moment. So, but I don't know. I mean, I guess that's a very, very much a question you'd have to ask. Uh, I have to ask the boy himself, but. <laughs> um, Basically, going through these players here, so we've seen, we've kind of said that you know we see that Dennis Geiger uh, probably will stay in the Hoffenheim team for for a few years yet anyway, and just develop that role more. Um, same with Frankie De Jong, he'll probably become a key player for Ajax. Uh, the Pershers maybe after this season will eventually make the move and hopefully it's a smart move. So, at the risk of um, getting abuse on Twitter, uh, when do you think Tierney might leave? I. I, I Part of me thinks, I mean, it's very difficult for Tierney. If if it was in any other situation, any other player, I would say at the end of the season, he would be away. But 
you just can't really it's difficult to put into words just how Celtic daft the boy is. I and know. <laughs> he sees himself as a Celtic captain. And it may be that he turns out to be a player who plays for Celtic for the next five years before he makes a move at some point. You just don't know. You don't know how much that pays into it. But the money that will be offered will be silly money for Scottish football. And that may be the tipping point. I mean, if you, as we've touched upon, the market's completely inflated. And whilst I think there's been a sense that Scottish players are being undervalued as much by their own clubs as by the the clubs that are signing them. You saw that in the summer with some of the deals that came came out with players moving down to the English Championship for probably a fraction of their worth and value. I think that Tierney would command a real fee, but there'll be a, a number of clubs that are willing to pay that fee. I mean, you keep coming back. I think Man United are the one that keep popping up and they're, they're definitely in the back of my mind because you look at left back at Manchester United and there seems to be a, a, a void there that could be filled by a player like mm-hmm. Tierney and I think that he he would be the kind of player that would be extremely well received by Manchester United fans. He's he's very much in you know, he's he's in the mould of the, the Gary Neville, Roy Keane, he's got that kind of gritty mentality that he won't be pushed around by anybody, but he's also got the, the ability to play at that level, I think. So, it really, it's a difficult call. I don't know how long he's going to be there. As you say, we'd really have to ask the boy himself, and I'm not sure he'd give us a straight answer. Aye, I mean, because it's funny when you watch him in like press conferences, he's very, very, um, you can tell he's had his PR training, you know. He's, he's very non-committal about anything. It's like, oh, I obviously I'm delighted. I obviously it feels great. It's like, all right, you know, you've not really told us anything there, but oh well. <laughs> um, but I, I and my final point on that would be if he does go to United, hopefully Mourinho doesn't reduce him to some sort of wide hatchet man, which is always a risk when he wins <laughs> in one of his teams. But right, well, I guess we'll wrap it up there. Um, so, is there anything you want to plug? Website, Twitter, all that good stuff. You can get me on, on Twitter at FM Analysis. Um, all of my written work at the moment goes on Eat, Sleep, Drink, Football, um, which is a, a website that we set up basically to do tactical analysis of of players, of coaches, of matches. You can find a whole lot of information on there and a lot of it is written by me. And I've actually got a piece on Dennis Geiger coming this week. So if you, you've liked what you heard in the podcast, make sure you check that out and see See what I, I think about the player, and I'll give you a few examples of him in game, as it were, going to break them down. Um, but yeah, I think that it'll be you and I going forward with these podcasts, Grant. So no doubt we can take our Scottish bias into it going forward, and and maybe talk about a few Dundee United players next week or something. Yes, of course. That sounds good to me. Sounds good to me. Uh, as, as far as I go, you can find me at Odnedge on Twitter. That's O D N E J. My offer to pay any hackers that want to get into Agenda and give me the password that would be great. So that offer still stands. Uh, you can also just go to wrongfootballindex.com. We've always got podcasts. We've always got articles coming out uh, also on Twitter at wrongfootballi. And yeah, just keep an eye on the feeds. Um, oh yeah, and I can always vouch for Lee's, Lee's site. Eat, sleep, drink. It is absolutely brilliant. I'm not just saying that because he's on the other end of the Skype call. So check that out and check out World Football Index. And we hope to have you listening to us next time. So see you later.